Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'm very excited to be talking with Ken Miller, a CFRE and the president of Denali FSP Fundraising Consultants, a non-profit fundraising and management consulting company in Anchorage, Alaska. Ken, welcome. Thank you. And I already know it's going to be a very interesting interview because we've just caught up for the past 10 minutes and your background story sounds incredible. But to get started, um, before you were in fundraising, you had a long career in sales and marketing. So tell us about the beginning of your fundraising career and what were some key differences you found between working in sales and marketing versus fundraising? Well, like you said, I had I graduated from college in 1984. I went to Dartmouth College here in the United States. And when I got out, I went into the sales world. And at that time, the, uh, the greatest sales job you get was working for IBM. IBM didn't hire me, but I did have an opportunity to work for the 3M Corporation. So I worked for the 3M Corporation and worked for Kodak and was involved in, in sales for years. And then I went into sales management and I became a manager of salesmen. And what happened was fast forward, in 2009, I moved up to Alaska from Reno, Nevada, uh, to the city of Anchorage, and was looking for work. I moved up here to get married to my high school sweetheart, and moved up here in 2009, went looking for work, and an uh, individual told me there was a position open at a nonprofit called Beans Cafe, which fed the homeless. Uh, it was a feeding facility, soup kitchen, as some people would call it. And at the time, I thought he had said that there was an executive director position open. So I went down there and spoke to the executive director and told him very simply, I was here to apply uh, for the executive director position. And the gentleman was nice enough to tell me that I am the executive director. And as far as I know, there's no position open as an executive director, but there is a position open as a development director. And I said, great, uh, what do I develop? because I had no clue what that meant. Um, I was just looking for a job, I was new in Alaska. And he said, that's the individual that does the fundraising. And I said, great, can I see your numbers? And I was looking you know, for his profit loss and his cash balance, just looking at some of the financials. And I never forgot, I looked at him and I said, hey, um, I can raise this a quarter of a million. If this is what you've been doing and this is where you wanna go, I can raise it a quarter of a million in one year. To this day, I don't know why I said that, but I did. And uh, that was the beginning of becoming a development director for Beans Cafe located in Anchorage, Alaska. So when I came in, I didn't look for the differences between sales and marketing and fundraising at that time. I really didn't know that. I just thought it was another sales job. But in time, of course, I've learned that uh, fundraising and development is uh, a bit different than most sales and marketing done in the for-profit world. And the predominant thing I come from what is called transactional uh, commodity sales. You have a product, you have a service, and you're selling it as a transaction. 
many times a one-off transaction. And what I was soon to learn and to quickly learn that fundraising or development is really, it's about relationship building. It really is about relationship building. We have, a, a, of course, a corpus of knowledge, there's best practices, but in the end, it comes down to building relationships with donors, building relationships with executive directors, building relationships with volunteers, building relationships with your board of directors, and building relationships really with your stakeholders as a whole. Yeah, great way to start. And what exactly, when you talk about director of development um, at Beans Cafe, so what did that role specifically entail? And what would you say is one of your more successful campaigns that stands out and why was it successful? Well, let's talk about the director of development first. <laughs> In Alaska, many nonprofits have a position called director of development where you are a director of one yourself. And it's a title that is given uh, to an individual that does the fundraising. When I began with Beans Cafe, I was it. I was the director of development. I was also the volunteer coordinator. And I also did quite a bit of the accounting. I, had, I wore many hats. I also did IT. So, but that's what happens in small nonprofits. And one of the things I love about small nonprofits is that many times we do wear many hats and that way we can speak to the, to the nonprofit and speak to different aspects of that nonprofit and ask questions or answer questions, especially from, again, our stakeholders or our funders or our uh, donors, potential and actual. So again, when I started, you know, I became the uh, director of development because that was just the title I was given and I began and in the beginning, it was uh, building a team and building a structure because there was no structure, which again, many small to medium-sized nonprofits are really lacking in structure and best practices. Jeez, it sounds like a very varied and uh, big role that you took on there. And how were you able to attract and engage with donors to get the best outcome um, for Beans Cafe? Well, good question. Um, first of all, you have to identify your, your donors. And when I came into uh, this small nonprofit, uh, they had, they did not have a donor database, period. Didn't exist. And I'm a consultant now. I've worked with 110, 115 different nonprofits, and many do not have a donor database. What many have is their accounting system, whether it's FreshBooks or QuickBooks or whatever they may be using. And uh, they have you know, individuals that have either bought something or donated or did a funding, a grant, and it's in their accounting software. So we have to extract the information usually in, into an Excel or, or, or a file, a CSV file. And then you literally have to manipulate uh, in Excel until you can get your first donor relationship management software program. And so when I came in, again, I, like I at one point had said, uh, I also did IT. So when I developed their IT, uh, one of the things I said we need to do is obviously upgrade and improve our software. So I say that all that to how do I engage with the donors? First, I had to identify the donors. And then we have to identify at what level 
And then I had to identify, I mean, what level have they been giving and identify within the parameters of that nonprofit, what are my major donors and what are my other donors, I'll call them. What donors are individuals, what donors are organizational? Because I divide all my funders, donors, individuals, um, where I divide the pots of money into just two groups, individuals and organizations. And organizations is another conversation, but I really love talking about individuals. I've identified my individuals, major donors and others. And then I start looking at well, what are the contacts um, and what, how have we been contacting them? What is the consistency of our, our contact? And then what means or modes of communication are we using to engage? Are do we engaging at, at events? Are we engaging through direct mail? Are we engaging in the digital realm? How are we engaging these donors, whether they're major or other? And once that's been identified, then I spent a lot of time and spent a lot of time, again, starting to build relationships with all the donors. And at, uh, but when I first started, we had approximately 4,000 donors. And three years later, when I left Beans Cafe, I had over 8,000 individual unique donors that were good. And uh, that was, it became very successful for me bringing in uh, dollars through acquisition and through my appeals. And from a team management point of view, you mentioned that you were the only one that's in development when you came in, but I guess even looking at team management from a supplier point of view or whatever, volunteer point of view, uh, whatever it may be, how big was your team roughly and what went into getting the best out of your team? Yeah, so that's a great question. So when I started, I was a team of one. And in time, I went to my executive director because I was showing success, and I always say success begets success. Because I was showing that, and we were getting what we call an excess um, funds coming in, I was making, bringing in more money than we were spending, that gave me the opportunity to, for him to, to allow me to hire staff. And so my first hire was an event volunteer coordinator. So I could take that off of my plate. Uh, because it wasn't the best um, uh, return on investment of my time. I'm, I speak a lot about capacity. I usually talk about capacity, and we use it in fundraising and the capacity of the donor, but I talk about capacity of, capacity of, of time. And um, I only have so much capacity. So the first person I got was the event and volunteer coordinator. And then I looked um, and hired an uh, individual for annual giving. And then um, I went and hired uh, an individual to work some of the larger accounts and programmatic um, things that we're um, looking to fund from organizations and foundations. And so I ended up with a team of four, but I, you know, I was looking at that question. That's my team that I hired, but just as important on that team was volunteers. And we had a robust volunteer program. And uh, one of the things I'm not even proud, but one of the things that I, I admired even at that time is I've always treated volunteers very well. And I made it fun for them. I, I gave them a lot of praise and accolades. And um, for that reason, we had a tremendous, we couldn't have done it. We couldn't have done it without the, the volunteers because 
we had so much volume coming in at, at a certain point in remit envelopes and in um, thank yous. I'm a big one on thank yous within 24 hours. And so when you're getting 150 envelopes coming in with donations, I can't write 150 thank yous. Believe me, I can't. I mean, after my first thousand that I wrote, I'm like, I'm done writing thank yous. And that's when I would get the teams of volunteers to come in, grab some pizza, grab some cookies, some soda, and give them the list, and they would do the thank yous. But so we had volunteers, it was a, a very important. And then, you know, part of the team has to be, you know, other staff members. Accounting, you know, was literally part of the team. You know, we talk about a, um, a philosophy of philanthropy on creating an environment of philanthropy. And that was tough in the beginning. Believe me, that was tough. And that's tough for a lot of small, medium, and even some large nonprofits where there is not a culture of philanthropy within the organization. So we had some, uh, we would say, uh, some uh, heated and fervent uh, conversations with the executive director and the other team, the program directors, the accounting department, um, the service delivery people about creating a culture of philanthropy. But again, when people start seeing the results that come in through the funding, and that allows them to do more in programs, that allows them to do more in getting equipment to do their job better, whether it's feeding, whether it's driving meals for our conjugate meals, whether it's uh, new accounting software, because we have funding now, because we have excess cash that has come in, man, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to get them on, on the team. And in the end, we had a fantastic, strong team. Wow, that sounds great. And I think you've uh, picked some key points out of that, uh, which was actually going to be my next question. But I'll see if there's anything that you can add to it. Um, what is your leadership style like? Oh, man, I'd love that question. Okay, so let's talk about what was my leadership style when I started as a leader. And when I, and it is today, because I do a, a lot of leadership today. Um, when I first started, I came out of the corporate world, right? Come out of uh, 3M, I'd come out of Kodak, I'd come out of management. And my leadership was more really management. Here are the numbers. Here is what I expect of you. Go do it. That was my, uh, that was pretty much my leadership style. And I had individuals that reflected back to me um, their concern with my leadership style. My leadership style worked for me. I'm a very analytical person. I love spreadsheets. I love linear tasks. But that's not how everybody else thinks and or works. And so one of the key things and how my, my um, leadership style changed over time is I became more amenable to um, people doing it a different way. Just because Ken does it one way doesn't mean it's the right way. And if we get to the desired result, then it's a, it's a win for all of us. So that's number one. Number two, one of the most important things is I support the individuals that I lead. That is one of my key things as a leader is to support them Number three is that I fight their battles because I'm usually fighting a battle, uh, whether it's for pay, whether it's for vacation or time off, whatever it may be. I'm in a room 
with individuals, whether it's the board, the executive director, because there's only two people I reported to, um, fighting their battle. And I fought their battle. And one, a good portion of them, but sometimes I didn't, but I fought it. And they knew I did fight it for them. And that's a good leader. The other thing that I, I learned to do um, is uh, have a lot of fun. When I first started, I wasn't really about fun. I was about, let's meet our numbers. And, uh, you know, five o'clock, go, go home. But uh, I, I, I'm big on fun. And anyone who knows me, I'm big on laughter. And so I added laughter and fun. Then the other thing is, um, in my leadership style, is to um, allow that individual to take uh, ownership of the desired goal. Okay, let's sit down. What are our goals? Whether it's, you know, how many volunteers we're going to have this month or how many events we're going to do this year or what are you going to do on your annual giving campaign? Okay, let's come to an agreement on the numbers and then I will support you, but I'm going to allow you to meet these numbers because we've agreed that you can meet these numbers. But I also, a part of my leadership style is to challenge. You know, if you come in and say, hey, I think I can do 400,000. Okay, what if I challenged you to do 500? What would you need from me or from the, you know, the nonprofit um, to maybe get you to half a million for your major gifts this year? And then we could sit down and it's a conversation. It's a negotiation. And, uh, and then the other thing that I do in my leadership style, I am really, really big on continuing education. I will do anything within my means and my budget to support you in education and learning uh, best practices. And a lot of times it's not even best practices. It's learning leadership, because I've sent people to leadership classes and skills and learning soft skills. And that's probably, probably the biggest change for me is, is I am so much more grounded and open to soft skills. I'm really into soft skills and, uh, and creating an environment that people want to come, people want to do the best that they can because they're, you know, in pursuit of their desired goal and also the team goal. And then the other thing, that's the last thing, is um, I've done a lot with teams and uh, I love teams and I love facilitation of groups and of teams and looking for consensus because it used to be this is the way i want it done do it now it's about okay what is your input well let's talk about it as a group and let's come to a consensus and if this is what the group wants to do or this is what your team wants to do let's do it now i'm going to support you i thought this might be the best way but let's try it because one of the greatest things a leader can do and i'm super serious on this is allow people to fail, is allow people to fail. So many times we don't wanna allow people to fail. And if you can create an atmosphere or an environment that people are comfortable, that they can at least take chances. Now we may have to modify, we may have to make some uh, uh, adjustments as we go along, but hey, we try. I had failures. One of the questions that you have is about failures. Yeah, I had failures, but I had a, uh, an executive director that allowed me to fail and learn from that and also learn maybe what we don't want to do 
in our areas of fundraising and development. So that's pretty much, uh, let me see anything else. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll just put this one as um, I'm protective. I will protect my people. I cut my people, my team, the people that I'm leading, I will protect. And I, I have stories I could tell you about protection literally in the, in the, in the realm of, of verbal or in, in the corporate world, but I'm talking about also protect, um, protect them from, from individuals that, that want to steal, steal their joy of life. I've had donors that have been very, very negative. I've had executive directors. I've had board members and I will protect you. Go ahead. Don't worry about that. Go ahead. Going back to your office. I'll, I'll take care of this. And I will go in there and remember I said, I will fight for you. And, and I will, I will tell my truth to, to protect you. Cause some, sometimes you, this is a tough enough business uh, in development. It really is in a lot of ways because you're dealing with people. And so many times when you're in a good uh, state of mind, it is so much easier to be effective as a fundraiser, as opposed to um, hurting as a fundraiser. And I'll, I'll look you dead in the eye. I have cried as a fundraiser because of uh, information I've gotten from either the executive director, a board member, or a donor. I've had tears coming down my eyes because I hurt that bad. And I've had almost all my team members cry because of situations that arose within the organization and rose outside the organization from individuals that put them in, in that sense. And my thing is to sit down with you, close the door, let's talk about it. And then if there's something I can do, I will do my best to, um, you know, to alleviate, ameliorate that situation. Well, the incredible answer. And it sounds like you'd be someone very good to have on your side, especially during those hard times. And I like the emphasis that you put on um, embracing failure. So it's a good lead into this next question around, um, and I'll rephrase it because I had uh, what stands out as a memorable mistake, but what stands out as a time that you failed um, in your time at Beans Cafe? And what did you learn from that experience? Well, there's a couple. There's <laughs> a bit of more than more than one. Uh, but again, I was given the environment to fail within reason. So if you fail at a, a five or ten thousand dollar level, and you're a three million dollar organization, and you're bringing in a half a million excess or surplus to the organization, again, they're going to be uh, a little more amenable to that failure. But uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I came in, uh, started working in 2010 for Beans Cafe. At that time, no one in the state of Alaska was doing text to give. And I thought that was awesome. I was like, yeah, let me try this thing out. And so I literally created text to give. And I know I created it because I had to work with the telephone companies, you know, the mobile telephone companies. There's three of them up in Alaska. And uh, so it took a good six months. We advertised, we promoted it, and it literally probably, we spent a good six to $8,000. And over the next year, I think I might've brought in, I don't know, $600, $700. And uh, for me, that's a failure because I'm like, at least I'm gonna break even. It's acquisition and I'll break even. 
I didn't even break even. I got one tenth. And so I learned that text to give uh, didn't work. Um, you know, the price point's too low. You don't get enough information about the donor itself. And um, it, it, it just doesn't work. It, at least at that time, it did not work. Um, and then, you know, there's failures of ignorance. And there's, you know, I'll another failure is um, giving, giving Tuesday. I didn't like giving Tuesday. I, I thought it was, a, you know, a flash in the pan. And uh, so I did not emphasize it or, or, or push it. And uh, I know we, uh, organizations that I've worked with, even as a consultant, have probably have lost some money because I didn't really teach them or give them information on Giving Tuesday, which I truly believe in today. And um, it's viable and it's going to be around for a long time. So, you know, we always remember our, our, uh, our, our faux pas or the, the mistakes. And so as we're, as we're talking, I can remember a few more, but that's, that's enough for now. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for sharing those. But, uh, after nearly four years as the director of development at Beans Cafe, what was just what we've just been into, um, you began your consultancy, which was Denali FSP Fundraising Consultants. So, what prompted you to make this change into consultancy? Um, external person. So, what happened was, is I was the director of development for Beans Cafe. I was doing obviously very very well. And I, I was making uh, 83000 and I'm real frank with money. Anybody who knows me, I'm just real frank with it. I was making 83000 2010. I didn't think I was being paid enough, but I was making eighty three. And um, something happened that my uh, pay was going to be cut after I brought in literally a surplus of a half a million dollars. I wasn't really happy about that. My wife was even more unhappy. And um, so I was open to going somewhere else or doing something different. And I got a call from a foundation and the foundation said, can we meet? I said, sure. It was the largest foundation in Alaska. And the VP sat down with me and said, hey, uh, we think you're a very, very good fundraiser. And we would like to know if we help support you and set you up would you be willing to work with small and medium-sized nonprofits? And I looked at him and I remember, I, I'll never forget, I looked and I said, uh, I said, well, if I can get my head through the door, because if you think I'm that good, I'll go home and ask permission of my wife. Because I have to always ask permission from my wife before I did anything. <laughs> I was a good husband. And, um, and so uh, I left there. And uh, it took six months because I was afraid. I was afraid. I was fear-based. And the fear was I was going to go from 80,000 to uh, hope and wish. And um, I went, I talked to an angel investor. He said, no, but if you believe in what you have to offer, go out and do it. And I did believe in what I had to offer. I still believe in what I have to offer. I'm good at what I do. And I'm a good consultant. And I have something to offer uh, to the individuals I work with, the organization. Like I said, I've worked with about 115. And um, so I uh, went out there on faith and haven't looked back since. That was April 1, April Fool's Day, 2014. And I've been blessed. 
I am blessed to do what I do. That's incredible. And I mean, COVID-19 aside, uh, what have you found to be some of the biggest challenges when it comes to Alaskan nonprofits raising money for their causes? What have you seen? Yeah, it's interesting why you say Alaska nonprofits. It's, 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 to me, it's nothing different about Alaska nonprofits. There are some things that are particular to us as a state that make it maybe a little more difficult in some areas. So let's talk about what the difficulties are. Number one, geographically, we're huge. So if I'm working with a client, they could be in Fairbanks or in Juneau, they could be 800 miles, 600 miles, 400 miles away. Okay, that's one. Number two, and probably one of the most important is that there is a finite amount of organizational funders within this state. There are only approximately 100 to 120 organizations that can fund that, that are in within the state. Now you can go out to the Murdoch, you can go out to the Gates Foundation, whatever, that's in the lower 48. But within the state, there's only 10, 15 foundations, and there's only so many corporations that will fund nonprofits. And it's approximately, we'll say 120. The other difficulty is, is that there is a finite amount of people. There's only 750,000, 700,000, 750,000 people in the whole state in the whole state. So that's going to limit the number of individuals, what we call capacity, to be major donors. There are only so many millionaires in the state, and we probably have less than any other state in the nation. I mean, 750,000, there might be 700,000 millionaires in, in New York, for all I know, you know or, or California. Um, so we're very limited in the pool especially of major donors. So, and then, you know, the, the biggest challenge, uh, literally, I think the biggest challenge is lack of knowledge, lack of back best practices, lack of knowledge. Because the difficulty in Alaska is that um, for a person to become a development director, remember I came into development, I had no experience. I didn't even like nonprofits. When I started, I did not like nonprofits. I didn't think they were professional. And of course, I learned in time we're very professional. We can be, but uh, there is a we are hurting on individuals with the skill sets of development and fundraising, and with the best practices uh, to do fundraising. That's why I get hired uh, because they need someone to teach them. Because there's you know a lot of there's not a lot of there's, there's not a pool of individuals with the skills. And especially working uh, when you move up and into the directors of development, I mean, true directors of development with a team and or uh, major gift work. Mm. Yeah, and I will um, add a question in there. What are some of the common uh, uh, best practice not being practiced, I guess, um, in, what, in the work that you're doing? What are you seeing there? Where should I start? Um, <laughs> we'll start with the letter A, acquisition. So uh, appeal, oh, excuse me. Um, so the, the difficulty, the, probably the number one difficulty is again, lack of best practices. Number two uh, difficulty and problem is that uh, they do not have good data management. I've worked with 115 nonprofits and on one hand, 
I can tell you that's one hand, five of them had good data management. That's it. And uh, so any of my clients that are listening, it was you. Yeah, it was you. So data management is another one. Uh, then the other one is many times they don't have a plan. So, oh yeah, this is the other difficulty of the challenge is that nonprofits in Alaska were most of the time based on events. And anyone who knows me, I hate events. I hate them. And I think one of the best things that came out of this pandemic is it shut down events. And so what that allowed individuals to do in development teams and people and nonprofits is they had to look to fill that void of income coming in and turn to best practices, which is you know direct mail, online, uh, email, uh, in person, you know, uh, stewardship, you know, I could go on and on, but they had to turn away from events um, because the return on investment in events. But anyway, so we were really big on events down here. And of course, there's no other state that's big on events, especially the small and medium nonprofits that's exclusive to Alaska, but just wanted to bring that up. But anyway, those are just some, some of the, then the other one, I'll leave one more. And this is what I hear probably all over, but it's Alaska too. Um, again, we talked about that culture of philanthropy. Not, there hasn't been a culture of philanthropy. So the boards are not trained well up here either. Okay. And, and they're not familiar with fundraising or development. Many boards haven't had to do development. See, a lot of nonprofits in Alaska got funding from events and they got funding from grants. And then when those started drying up, whether they're from federal, state, municipal, foundational, corporate, then they, they were left with, my God, we don't have a donor database or we don't have one that's robust. And the board, all they see is the numbers and they're like, well, and my thing is, one of the first things I do when I come in, do we have 100% board giving? How much have, have you given, Mr. Board member or Mrs. Board member? And so anyway, that culture of philanthropy with the board and the culture of philanthropy with staff. I mean, I'm, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen adversarial relationships between other staff, usually accounting and program, program, people who run the program towards the development team or development in itself. So um, it's, it's overcoming and, it's just, and it, most of it's just education. It's just education with love. You know, doing education, don't beat it into them give it to them in an effusive and a positive manner saying that, hey, when we do this, this, and this, it'll allow you to do more of what you do in your program. It'll allow you to, be, uh, to do your accounting and do your financials easier. It'll allow you, Mr. Executive or Mrs. Executive Director, to you know, be able to present to the board these numbers. And so it, again, it becomes that win-win. Yeah, great. Now, thank you for sharing that. And a key area of expertise that you specialize in with nonprofits is in, is conducting an initial fundraising audit. I mean, what commonly goes into this process and what exactly are you looking for? What I'm looking for is I'm looking for problems. You know, I'm hired usually to solve a problem. 
a concern. And the problem is, is our fundraising is down or we believe our fundraising could be better or we could bring in more. Um, therefore, we're gonna have you come in, give your expertise, share your expertise with our team or staff or development. So when I come in, uh, when I'm doing a development audit, what I'm looking at is the overall organization. And um, the first thing, I, you know, obviously I come in and I, I said, I need your financials. I need your P&Ls. Um, I don't really care about the cash balance as much, but I definitely need the P&Ls. Uh, give me three years worth. I need to, uh, your donor database, I need you to send me that in an Excel or CSV spreadsheet with all um, columns, all information. I need to see what you're working with. Um, and then I need to see your uh, staff structure. And especially, I need to see the staff structure of the development team. How is that set up? Because there are best practices um, in setting up a development team. Um, and then a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, I'll come to, you know, some of the staff meetings and I'll listen in there. And then after, uh, you know, this may take three weeks, a month, I write a report, you know, 20, 25 pages. And again, I'm looking for where are our impediments to success. And then it's one thing to lay that out. Then I um, let them know what the solution is, because there is a solution. There's very few problems I've ever run into in the, in the development world that there wasn't a solution, okay? Sometimes the solution though is you gotta walk away um, from that donor, you know, as an example. You know, there's something ethically, and that's a little different, I went off to a little aside there, but you know, but the, there's usually a solution and it's for me to present that solution. And then it usually goes to the board and then the board makes a decision as to what the next step, whether to hire me, and usually I do, or to go in another direction. And another area that you specialize in is maximizing acquisition mailouts for fundraising campaigns. How can nonprofits be better in this area? Uh, first of all, do it. Let me say that again. Do it. You know, one of the uh, sad things is when, when funding gets cu cut for whatever reason in the development world, one of the first things that gets cut many times is acquisition is acquiring new donors. And we wanna acquire new donors so we can start to identify which ones have the potential to be stewarded to major donors and then to the Holy Grail, which for me is a planned gift, okay? So, but we have to start here, move here and move up to here. So in acquisition, uh, and I love acquisition, um, first of all, understanding that acquisition is not to break even. That's not the goal. The goal in acquisition is to um, is to uh, is to, is to make seventy five to eighty percent. If you make seventy five to eighty percent of what you expended, you've done well. Because once they become they get into your appeal slash donor list, then your the long term value in your trans transaction cost has been lowered considerably. So what I do is in the, again, the most important thing that I do in, in the acquisition world in the direct mail, because this is acquisition in different areas. And so let's, let's talk about the different areas real quick. So one of the most important things, and I, again, 90% of the nonprofits I've worked with don't do this. They have events and they don't 
get the people that come to the events, whether they're the paid guests or the, you know, the guests of the guests. Um, but I'm really big. Give me, if you give me a name and give me an email if possible, because I can find their address. I've been finding, I've found tens of thousands of addresses. Um, I use Zava search, I use whitepages.com and I find addresses. This is one of the services I do. So that's real important. In fact, let's go back to that real quick. I hate to go into these asides, but I do. I've gone, I've looked at, again, 100, 115 databases. And I'll say every single database I've ever looked at, there are names in that database that have no address. And if you're listening to this, go back to your database. And if you have a name without an address, find the address. And the reason it happens is because a person usually did a credit card donation, either online or at an event or whatever, and you've never got their name. Put it in, the, put in there and they're in your, uh, your CRM or DRM, your uh, Contact Relationship Management. No acronyms, Ken. Uh, but it's not in, it, there's no address. So that's number one. Oh, I want the first things I clean up and I clean up the data. But then to do the acquisition, and this is the important part I want to say to, to the people that are listening. What I do is um, I buy lists. This is really, that's the only way you really can get an uh, uh, acquisition list is to buy it. But what do you buy? And this is what I do. I do 50 miles wherever I'm at within 50 miles. Uh, if I have to, depending on what kind of funding I have, I just do women. That's it. 80% of my donors are women and 80% of your donors are women and your potential donors are women. Okay. And then what I do after that is I go to wherever I'm buying the uh, data from and I um, ask for, I usually just get the, the bulk list and then I'll send it to uh, uh, one of the uh, donor search or there's another company I've worked with. And I ask for, I'll give you 20,000 names, 25,000 and give me back all of the individuals on this list who have donated to a nonprofit in the last three years of at least $500. Because in the end, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for major donors. For up here, $500 single gift is a major donor for most of my nonprofit, if not all of my nonprofits. Um, but most of them, I would not say all of them. So that's what I look for. I look for geographic, I look for female, and I look for, um, I look for wealth. And that's how I purchase the list. And then I do direct mail. I guess once you've done your acquisition and you've, you're starting to get your pool of donors, how can nonprofits be better in nurturing existing donors to ensure that they stay loyal to the cause? All you can do is the best that you can. So do best practices. You're not going to keep them all, period. Nobody does. Let me put it this way. If you keep, if you have 100% retention of your donors, you don't have enough donors. It's that simple. You don't have enough donors. It's just, it's just by the nature of people being human, there are people that are going to donate you. They're not going to donate to you the next year. But you want to do the best that you can. Find your benchmark for your type of nonprofit. Whether your benchmark is second year, 40%, 60%, 32%, whatever it is. Find your benchmark and try to equal or beat the benchmark. Okay? That's the point. We're just talking about first the second year retention. Okay, that's all. We can worry about, you know, second to third and long, long term. 
And then what we're what you're trying to do is you're trying to identify those people that are consistent and for them to be consistent you have to be consistent if you're doing two mailers you're not doing enough mailers period you're not doing enough so you have to you have to put a message in front of them this is one of the key things i teach when i'm in front of people and i teach this when you only do two mailers or one mailer let alone one you are doing a disservice to your donor base you are doing a disservice. How dare you? And the reason I say that, and I can look you in the eye and say that is the reason people donate, the main reason people donate is because it makes them feel good. And here you are because you're afraid or your executive director or your program director or your accountant said, oh, we're mailing too much. Or, you, you, you're going to be bothering them. No, what I do is I give people an opportunity to feel good. That's what I do. And that's my job as a, as a development professional is to allow people to feel good. On a, on a good direct mail piece, I'll get 4%. That's a good piece, okay, from an appeal mailer. I know my numbers, believe me, I know my numbers. And so 96 didn't do it anyway. Okay, and if they want to be removed, they'll let you know. Okay, but those 4%, those 4%, four out of 100 people that felt good about writing out that check, that felt good about going online and putting their credit card to support something they believed in that made them feel good. I donate, I donate a lot. And I do it because it makes me feel good when I donate. And so here I am trying to identify those individuals. So I have to consistently communicate with them, communicate with a good message. And I'm gonna really get into the, the messaging, but this is, the, I always say fundraising, just two things, content and delivery, content and delivery. And so now we do our delivery well, and then we start to identify those individuals that we can steward. Because when you got 8,000 donors, I can't touch all 8,000, I can't. I don't have a team big enough to touch all 8,000, but I am gonna to touch my major donors and I'm gonna to touch them with a phone call, I'm gonna to touch them with an in-person meeting, I'm gonna to touch them with tickets to an event, whatever it may be, but I'm going to touch them for their significant and considerable gift in support of what we do in our community. And we are so thankful. And then, you know, Key, I talked about it already. I'm, I'm 24 hours, thank you within 24 hours hours handwritten thank you within 24 hours because i'm so appreciative of you taking time and taking something out of your capacity time and money to support what we do in our community our community so once i've identified that then you know we can do things on the margins to try to move people into being monthly donors because they're some of your best donors especially for planned giving they're some of your best but i'm always trying to identify individuals for to be major donors and identify people to be monthly donors. And then I'm trying to uh, get them to possibly um, consider us for a planned gift. Very strong messages in there. And um, yeah, I think a lot of fundraisers can take a lot from that answer. That was really good. So I was going to say as a follow up to that answer that you just get, um, you gave, and it might be 
um, along those lines. But what have you commonly found to be the biggest opportunity that fundraisers or fundraising teams or nonprofits are missing out on? Good question. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll probably tell you. This is not all, but the probably the biggest opportunity that they miss out on is is working with major donors. You got a person that's giving you 500, 5,000, 25, 5 million. They so believe in what you're doing and your your function, your 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 what you do in your community so resonates with them that for you not to um, have met and physically, if possible, sit down with those major donors is is a disservice to the nonprofit and literally a disservice to them or to invite them in to invite them to a special tour, invite them in behind the scenes on an event, invite them in to be a a special volunteer. If we have, we used to have some things at Beans Cafe where there were special volunteers uh, for special events. Um, But working with major donors uh, is probably, and let me me say something as a, not a caveat, but there's another aspect of that. The greatest impediment to success in fundraising is one word, it's one word. And that word is fear, it's fear. That's the greatest impediment. That's at least, that's, and this is my opinion, it's fear. It's not ignorance, because sometimes there is ignorance. But if you have courage, you'll have the courage to find the information to be successful. But it's fear. And so people are so afraid of bothering people. They're so afraid of making the ask. They're so afraid of the follow-up call. I remember I went to a presentation and we said that the most underutilized thing in fundraising is the phone. It's the phone. And what they meant was talking to donors, give them a call and thank them. Give them a call and thank them, you know? And again, it, it, so much of it comes from fear. And so the only way to overcome the fear, and the way I do it, I teach making the ask. I, 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 I literally teach on how to make the ask. And one of the things is, is to practice it, uh, do role playing, but get comfortable with it because once you've done it a few times, it, 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 it really comes fun. It's almost fun to make the ask. It really is. Because all they can do is say yes, no, or not now. And they've already been a donor. And so even if they say no, thank you. Thank you for your past support. You know, we would hope you would be able to assist us in this future endeavor. But again, we are so appreciative. And you have this wonderful conversation and end up and go to the next thing that you have to do. But um, not now, it just means that. And then yes, man, what an awesome feeling when you get your first yes from a major donor. I still remember mine. I mean, you never forget your first. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And um, I will jump to the uh, professional development uh, part of this interview because um, especially when we discuss leadership styles and uh, everything in that area, um, you could you could hear the passion coming out and you've got a great insight as 
is who you are as a leader, but you're also currently serving on the board for both the AFP Global and AFP Canada. Um, what is your role on these boards and how has your involvement helped develop you as a fundraising professional? Well, my role on the board, I'm on the uh, AFP Canada Foundation Board. In fact, we had a meeting this morning, which was wonderful. And they're some of my favorite colleagues and friends. Um, maybe because they thought we could see Russia from here. But anyway, I'm on the Canada Foundation Board. <laughs> and um, and I'm, but Canada's like my neighbor and we love them. And I, I love, I've been so grateful for being on that board. So predominantly, I'm, I'm on their um, communication committee uh, for the Canada Foundation Board. And we've been working uh, on what we call a case for support, which many of you on this call or listening would know what that is. So we're working for a case for support for the uh, AFP Canada Foundation Board. And uh, for the AFP Global uh, Board, uh, I am just a member at large and I am on two committees, uh, but I just got on the board. I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm on IDEA and uh, I'm on another committee. Not oh, I'm on the Finance Committee because I love numbers and I love finance. And I, and I believe I'm also on the IDEA. But I just uh, was. Um, a point, not a point, I was elected to that and uh, started my term uh, January 1 and uh, look forward to that. I'd been on the board before uh, and I'm just glad to return again. Some of my uh, favorite people in fundraising and colleagues. And, uh, you know, we have an opportunity to, um, you know, get back to our sector and to be a strong voice for our sector with the staff and the leadership and the board and the board leadership, uh, incredible, incredible uh, individuals on the board and also on staff at AFP Global, we are blessed. Um, and so, you know, again, you know, same thing. You know, I talked about leadership and fighting the fights. Well, AFP Global fights the fights. You know, they go to Capitol Hill and fight those fights. AFP is all about support. And just like I said, great leadership, I believe it's about support. And great leadership is also about allowing entities or groups to, um, to structure uh, toward an end result. And so, you know, we're really broken into our AFP chapters. And we have two, over 200 chapters. But the chapters, how they do their education, how they do their website, how they do, you know, as long as they're within the ethical guidelines, um, you know, we allow them to, uh, you know, take lead within their area. And, uh, and again, you know, there's great leadership from, from AFP staff, what we call AFP Global, and there's great leadership from, uh, I believe, from the board, you know, because we have, you know, a legal and fiduciary responsibility to our stakeholders, and you are our stakeholders. What would your advice be to other aspiring fundraising leaders on how they can serve on their first board? So yeah, a lovely question, lovely. Um, I am really, really big on growing uh, the next generation, let alone people me or maybe from my generation. Um, and so what I recommend uh, is you start at your chapter and you uh, approach your chapter president for if you're AFP, if you're CASE, if you're AHP, the AADO, and again, I, I hate to do acronyms, you know, but if you belong to one of those organizations, and if you don't, 
and you're a fundraiser and you're listening to this, join an organization. I'm AFP. I love AFP. I'm also African-American development officers. I'm AADO, but there's K's for uh, education and advancement and there's AHP for individuals that are within, you know, hospitals in the medical fields. So join a organization. Um, and again, you want to join for two main things, education, and you want to join for support. Because I'm, again, I'm big on the soft. I'm big on the soft. And to be around fellow fundraisers and fellow people that are dealing. Remember I said, uh, every person that worked on my team has cried, and I've cried because it hurts sometimes. Fundraising hurts, okay? But there's a greater goal, a greater good that we're providing for the community. And also, I love what I do. I love fundraising, okay? And because I love it, I get to do something. I get to get paid doing it, and I love what I do. That's why I'm loving, you know, being on this. But anyway, going back to the first thing to do is, is uh, approach your chapter, and, and say, hey, I would like to be involved and either get on a committee or uh, see if there's an opportunity to become a board member. Believe me, people usually are not, you know, breaking down the doors to get on a, a committee or to get on, uh, get on the board. And once you've done that, maybe just a year, I, I would look at contacting AFP Global, if you're an AFP or you want to, I, I think everybody should be an AFP, but that's me. Um, they have committees. In fact, I was talking to someone just last week and I'm attempting to get her on a committee at the AFP global level. But there's committees and there's usually an open period. But again, a lot of times people aren't breaking down the doors. So you may be outside the period um, and they still may have. Again, there's only three answers. Yes, no, and not now. And look at getting at the national level becoming a, um, a, a member of one of the committees. Start, I usually would say start the committee. I did committees for six years, seven years at the AFP uh, global level. And then um, I did my first term on the board. And then um, uh, I I've still been on committees last 10 years with AFP. And then I just got back on the board for my two year term now. Yeah, you're doing a lot for the profession and, you, you know, the work you're doing is really great. And what are you next striving for in the fundraising profession over the next five to 10 years? What I'm striving for is to, and I've started that process now, is to engage more African, what is it called, men of color in the fundraising world. Black, brown, whatever you know, but uh, men from a minority background, um, we have, we don't have a lot. Leave it at that, we don't have a lot. So we're in the process right now of uh, setting up a group called Men of Color in Development. Uh, we are having our second meeting here coming up this month um, and it will be successful. And I'm strongly involved in that. And uh, so that's one of the things I'd like to see in the next five years. Because we talk about idea all the time. Um, and that's, you know, inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. It's, a, it's a, one of the pillars of AFP, Association of Fundraising Professionals Global. And I've been on the committee and I've been involved with it uh, quite a bit uh, for the last 10 years. And um, 
you know, it's one thing to talk and we've done a lot of talking. We've also doing action. And so one of the things that I, my goal uh, in the next five years is to bring more and to grow more men of color uh, in fundraising um, to positions on the boards, positions on the committees, positions on the stage. It is so rare to see one speak from the stage when we present. And so um, that's one of the things I really would like to do. Uh, the other one is to, um, for me personally, and this is a, give my personal, uh, I want to uh, do more presenting in what we call the lower 48 continental United States. I've begun doing that and then the pandemic happened. Uh, but I want to do more of that. Uh, I want to get more, I want to learn more. That's one of the, I always tell people, one of the greatest gifts you can have as a fundraiser is curiosity. Because uh, I can't teach curiosity. I can teach you, you know, how to do a direct mail piece, you know, how to do a remit envelope well, best practices, but I can't teach curiosity. So are you curious? Are you hungry to learn? Well, one of the things I want to do is I want to learn a lot more about behavioral economics and fundraising and dabbled in that. Uh, the other thing I want to do in the next five years is to get my ACFRE. I'd like to do that in the next year, year and a half. I'm in the process of beginning that. Um, continue my board service. Um, and then be real proud with you is, is to retire, but always fundraise as a volunteer for organizations that I believe in. But of all of them, probably my number one would be to reach down and work with uh, young uh, men of color and bring them, um, uh, raise them up and, and hopefully help them uh, if they so choose to stay in the field to become successful and grow within the field of development because it's just too few and far between. Yeah, I look forward to seeing how it all progresses because I have no doubt, especially the uh, ACFRE, that won't be too long before we see your name among the other 150 uh, that you mentioned there. But we are down to the final question. And I just wanted to say, Ken, thank you so much for coming on Fulfilled today. What's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world? My final piece of advice is, you know, I've said this for, I've said this many times in person, but to the best of your ability, um, fall in love with what you do. I fell in love with fundraising. Literally, I fell in love with it. I loved it. I loved the, the results for the nonprofit I worked for. And I loved the feeling I had knowing that I'm doing a good job for the organization I was with. I fell in love first, probably, to be honest with you, I fell in love first with the results. I was bringing in results. Great for the ego, great for the pride. Okay, great. Fell in love with the mission, but I had already fallen in love with the mission because of my history. So, um, you know, a soup kitchen, I had a history with, and I got the help out of Super Kitchen. I'm on the other side. Okay, great. Then I fell in love with the people. Some of the nicest, finest human beings I've ever met are in fundraising, period. End of story. And I can't say that for every field I've been in. 
in sales. I really can't. Okay, I, I work with copier salesmen and I know copier salesmen and I know, you know, what that life was like, you know, the, the, the madman type world, you know, the, the cutthroat and the competitiveness. So fall in love. And then the, the, one of the greatest pieces of advice I can give a fundraiser is this. Remember, what we do is we engender a relationship between the donor and the mission. It's not the donor and the nonprofit. It's what the nonprofit does. And when we engender that relationship and grow that relationship, it makes the donor feel good. So go out there and make people feel good. Help them to feel good about supporting something that they believe in. Environment, health, social services, arts and culture. Doesn't matter. Makes them feel good. And build that relationship. And, and when you go in with that, it's not fear-based. It's really love-based. So that's my, that's it.